It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. So hello and welcome to December's Bits and Pieces podcast. And this is the last Bits and Pieces of 2023. So we've got our usual roundup of what's going on at Holyrood, what's going on at Westminster. We're also going to drop in on a bit of discussion about the forthcoming EU elections. And although we're not able to take part in those elections, they're still relevant to Scotland because it's about the future of Europe. So we'll drop in on that as well. Two big topics of discussion this month have been the COVID inquiry and the government's ill-fated Rwanda plan. First of all, the COVID inquiry. Nobody's coming out of it well at all. And they're all stabbing each other in the back like crazy. We're going to start with a clip of Johnson being held to account, finally. True to form, Johnson does try and blame any confusing messaging on the Scottish government. I think that's what he's saying. He's not terribly clear. I think the, the, the perhaps I could put it this way, the... the pandemic changed and the, and the, and the, and the virus uh, changed and its, its virulence and we had to change our response. I think that the, the just to complete the point, I think the, the problem was uh, that we would find sometimes that the, there was a difference in message. I'm not, I don't want to, um, too much heavy weather of this, but I think sometimes it was a, a problem. If I can take you on to my final point, and it's in relation to an expert report by Professor Ilsa Henderson, and it's about confusing messages. Now, you have said in your evidence that messaging was incredibly important. Messaging, in the end, was the most important tool we had to deal with the virus. I don't think we should deprecate the importance of messaging. So at the heart of what you were doing, you thought messaging was a critical tool in relation to the pandemic. This is about advice given by the UK government over communications with the public. An analysis of the text prepared speeches throughout 2020 shows that those speaking on behalf of the UK government did an incomplete job of outlining the territorial scope of their data, information or guidance. In the first months, there was almost no mention of devolved administrations or their first ministers. There was little attempt to outline what applied UK-wide and what applied only to England. The phrase this country was employed frequently to mean England or Great Britain or the United Kingdom. In general, spokespeople were slightly more likely to clarify if a UK-wide matter applied to the whole of the UK. Given by your own admission the critical nature of the communications and the fact that messaging was the most important tool the UK had to deal with the virus, was sufficient consideration given by the UK government to ensuring that the geographical jurisdictional of their data and information and guidance was made clear? Uh, well, I, I, I did my level best during the... Uh, the press conferences to try to make clear where, where the restrictions applied to. And I remember uh, several times saying uh, that they applied only uh, in England and, and uh, to trying to restrict uh, what we were saying. But I think well, you, Mr. You Johnson, you I have one blame, example. You can't of... blame ministers for talking about this country uh, or uh, when uh, 
that that's common parlance. And if I, if I, may, if I may say, the, the ministers are talking on behalf of the UK government to all the people that they are getting it. So if they say this country, it has to be made clear which country it refers to. For example, we're, we're all one country. For example, on the 23rd of June 2020, you clarified that measures applied to England only, and that's the one occasion it appears that's been highlighted, and then set out rules to follow for the British public. It did sound to me as if Johnson has no clue what he's done wrong and why there should be any issue conflating England, Britain and UK. He just doesn't get it. Running parallel with the COVID inquiry, finally it looks as if Michelle Moan is being held to account for the millions of pounds that she and her husband made by coming up with PPE through the government's fast track for Friends of the Tory government lane none of which was able to be used because it was all substandard and she lied about her involvement in the company. Uh, She's now come out and admitted that she lied but is attempting to minimise it. And she did what was being described as a car crash of an interview with Laura Koonsberg. Apparently came out of it appallingly badly. Now, we're not going to play Michelle Moan, but... Janie Godley did one of her voiceovers of part of the interview, which probably tells us everything we need to know. At the end of the day, Michael Gove told me, go ahead, Michelle, weigh in and get yourself some cash. So I just absolutely profiteered on the PPE. And then I said the company wasn't mine and the company was mine. I know I lied about that, but that's just a wee lie at the end of the day. I mean, I have managed to keep the money, but it's not my money, it's his money. And, you know, I'm good at putting it offshore. Uh, She's brilliant at hiding money, so she is. Why didn't you just be more straightforward about it? Well, I didn't want everybody to know. That I had got all the money for the PPE and then and then the stuff I bought wasn't worth it. You, you're not wanting people to know that, are you? So, I don't know what your point is here, Laurie. You're just bullying me now. The other big event this month was the Supreme Court, which found yet again that the Westminster government's Rwanda plan was illegal. So the government promptly decided to make some legislation overriding whatever future judges might say, treating Rwanda as a safe country, even though there is evidence that they're not safe for certain groups. George Monbiot was on Question Time, and this is what he had to say about the government's Rwanda approach. The whole point of the Rwanda policy is not to try to solve anything. It's to performatively beat up some of the most vulnerable and traumatised people on earth in order to distract attention attention from the government's own failures. And Johnny says, this is giving the working people of this country something. The only thing this is giving the working people of this country is to show them that somebody else is worse off than they are, because that somebody is being performatively beaten up by the government. That's the point of the policy. And we have this ridiculous new bill which is the first one I've ever seen which tries to legislate the nature of reality. It says, we will legislate that Rwanda is a safe country. Regardless of whether Rwanda is or is not a safe country, we will put it in the law that it is a safe country. You might as well have a bill which legislates that the moon is made of green cheese. (laughs) We have reached the point now, after 13 years of these fiascos, of total absurdity. They're not even intending to put this into implementation. 
They don't intend to make this a viable policy. They're just desperately throwing up clouds of dust in order to distract from the absolute catastrophe that this government has become for the great majority of the people of this country. And that would be a point of mere amusement for comfortable people like ourselves sitting behind this table. But it has real consequences for real people. And among those people are people who have already suffered appalling things, unspeakable things, and just desperately want refuge, a safe haven. And what do they get instead? They get a government of sadists deliberately beating them up in order to show how tough they are. Powerful stuff from Judge Mumbao there. Fiona Bruce, the somewhat partisan chair, asked the audience, which she said, it was a, an audience of majority Tory voters, and she asked them, hands up if you agree with the Rwanda policy. And there wasn't a single hand went up. This is Alison Thulis at Westminster. Humpty Dumpty said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. <laughs> just by saying that Rwanda is a safe country does not make it so. Legislating does not make it so. Minister says that Rwanda is safe, but yet somehow his treaty says that we will accept asylum seekers from Rwanda, from that safe country, so it's both safe and unsafe. He says he respects the uh, assessment of the Supreme Court, but he's here today to override it. His his treaty says that they won't remove children, but the treaty is full of provisions for what happens when children do end up in Rwanda. He says that human rights are important, but they're not there for everybody, and he seeks to disapply them. He comes here today as well, while the Rwandan minister says it's always been important to both Rwanda and the UK that our rule of law partnership meets the highest standards of international law and it places obligations on both the UK and Rwanda to act lawfully. Without lawful behaviour by the UK, Rwanda would not be able to continue with the Migration and Economic Development Partnership. So if this deal does break international law and our treaty obligations, the deal fails to exist. But it's not a matter that you can just overlook Human Rights Convention, the, the Refugee Convention, all of those other conventions, and disapply them when it suits. International law doesn't work that way. Mr Deputy Speaker, this is an assault on human rights. We should not let this stand from this House because human rights are universal and they are for everybody, not who the Home Secretary thinks that they should apply to. This bill is a dangerous distraction. It is part of a march towards fascism. Every single piece. I do not say that lightly, Mr Deputy Speaker. I do not say these things lightly. Does he believe that human rights are universal or does he not? And that is a really good point that she makes there. If it is such a safe country, how come they have refugees? Why are their own citizens seeking refuge from that country? And there's more. Joanna Cherry weighed in on the implications for the UK constitution, such as it is. Joanna Cherry. Oh. 
point of view of those of us who believe in the rule of law, the separation okay. of powers and the universality of human rights, yep. there's at least three extraordinary things about what the Home Secretary has said this evening. First, he says he doesn't have confidence in the domestic courts of the United Kingdom because mm-hmm. yep. they cannot always be relied upon to do what he wants them to do. Yep. <laughs> Secondly, he says he's going to replace the jurisdiction of the domestic courts of the United Kingdom with ministerial fiat yep. in yep. relation to interim measures passed by a court presiding over a treaty to which we are fully signatories. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, to quote Jonathan Sumption, it is extraordinary for the law to say that the facts are other than they are and then to oust the jurisdiction of the courts from determining whether that is the case. It's not just extraordinary, it's also not Article 6 compliant. And of course the ECHR is part of our domestic law by virtue of the Human Rights Act, which he's not repealing. So my question for him is this, is he proud of driving a coach and horses through the British Constitution? I kind of feel she fizzled out a bit at the end there. She was making some really points. And, you know, whether or not he's proud of what he's doing to the Constitution, the fact is they're legislating that the government can decide what's fact and what isn't. The process of a court case is you decide what the facts are, you decide what the relevant law is, you apply the law to the facts and you come up with your decision. Human rights means the basic minimum level to which every human is entitled. The idea that you can pick and choose to whom they apply. What you're actually saying is, I decree this person here is not human. When Alison Lewis mentioned fascism, that is where we're we're heading. Um, there's actually a 20-minute long speech that Alison Thulis did. It's on our YouTube channel. It's too long to include in this. But it was fabulous. It was a, she absolutely spelt out everything that was wrong with what's um, what's going on here. But meanwhile, in Scotland, what are we doing? We're incorporating the rights of the child into all our domestic legislation. Let's go to Holyrood and hear that act being passed into law. Can I begin uh, once again by drawing attention to the children and young people that are in the gallery today, the human rights detectives, the members of the Children's Parliament, members of the Scottish Youth Parliament, the Children's Commissioners, Young Advisors and Team Scotland, the UN Committee. I would like to sincerely thank them um, and all those that have gone before them because this is about you and this is for you and this is why we are quite rightly elected to our Parliament to represent you. This is a historic day for us as parliamentarians, but more importantly, for Scotland's children and young people, and indeed for all of Scotland, as we take a significant step forward in becoming the country that we want to be, a country where children grow up loved, safe and respected, so that they realise their full potential and where we respect, protect and fulfil human rights and live free from discrimination. We know that the ambitions of the UNCRC and Corporation Scotland Bill have been dented by the Supreme Court judgment, but there is still much to celebrate in this bill. The Children and Young People's Commissioner asks on her website, is the incorporation of the UNCRC still worth it? She has answered emphatically that it is. Regardless of the scope of the compatibility duty, this bill will help change the way we think about children's rights and includes mechanisms for holding ministers and public authorities in Scotland to account for respecting, protecting and enhancing those rights. The 20th of November was World Children's Day and on that day the Minister for Children and Young People spoke directly to children and young people in Scotland in a blog in which she responded to questions from the Scottish Youth Parliament about the UNCRC bill. She explained not only how the bill will promote cultural change, but how it provides extra legal protections for children and young people that are not currently available. 
This coming Sunday is Human Rights Day, which is celebrated every year to mark the date on which the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This declaration enshrines the inalienable human rights to which every human is entitled, and this year will mark the 75th anniversary of its adoption by the UN. Now, the importance of respect for human rights is, is as important now as it was 75 years ago. We see that in the horrific unimaginable conflicts across the world today, but also within the UK, with a repugnant Illegal Migration Act, an act which includes a ban on the right to claim asylum, allows for the prolonged detention and removal of children, creates barriers for acquiring nationality, and lacks a consideration of the principle of the best interests of the child. Now, the UNCRC and Corporation Scotland Bill is an important step on Scotland's journey to extend and protect human rights by incorporating treaties that haven't previously been part of our domestic law. This would be a significant achievement for Scotland, indeed. But we are the only devolved nation in the UK to incorporate the Convention into our domestic law and the only devolved country in the world to incorporate it fully and directly, albeit with some carve-outs to reflect devolved competency. What is also unique about our approach to that bill is it goes far beyond just incorporating the provisions of the Convention to include a number of proactive measures on implementation, like the requirement for the Scottish Government to produce children's rights and wellbeing impact assessments and to publish and update a children's rights scheme on a regular basis to demonstrate how it is progressing children's rights. UNICEF UK have described the bill and the work surrounding it as an example of best practice globally. So, Presiding Officer, we have much to be proud of in the way that Scotland is approaching human rights, and this, chance, uh, this bill is a chance to affirm and advance that approach. The Supreme Court judgment has impacted on our ability to deliver the ambitions of the bill that was unanimously passed in 2021. But the Scottish Government has nonetheless persevered with the bill to deliver as far as possible on Parliament's democratic wishes. Presiding Officer Martin Whitfield, I think, quoted from an MYSP earlier on when he quite rightly said that this is only just the beginning. I would also put it another way to quote one of the children and young people who were at our Cabinet takeover recently when they told us to just get on with it. And I humbly suggest we do, and I commend the motion and the bill to Parliament. We're going back to Westminster, where Joanna Cherry is talking about breaching treaties. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. I feel like I've been sucked back in time to listen to Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech again. I represent a multicultural constituency in Edinburgh South West with many immigrants, uh, many asylum seekers, many refugees. And I can tell you that my constituents don't support this bill. I was stopped in the street by all sorts of people at the weekend telling me that they hoped I would make a speech against this bill because they find it repugnant. And the member who's just spoken perhaps needs to inform his constituents that the reason they live in the sort of conditions he describes and the reason they have such low wages is not because of immigration but because of more than 10 years of Tory government. But anyway, Mr Deputy Speaker, what I intend to focus upon is the law, not as a lefty lawyer, but as somebody who tries to look like, a, like lawyers are bound to do, look dispassionately at the law. And if you listen to the public debate in the media anyway about this bill, you could be forgiven for thinking that the debate about the legality of the bill was confined to the competing tribes within the Conservative Party. Fortunately, it's not. And there are sources of advice independent of the government and independent of their querulous backbenchers. 
and it is on them that I want to focus. In particular, the Joint Committee on Human Rights, the Chair this morning, published a briefing based on the independent legal advice which has been given to the Committee. That is independent legal advice to the Committee for the benefit of all Members of Parliament and peers, and that is why it has been published. I have also had occasion to consider the briefing published by the Bingham Centre for the rule of law. And they're both very important, Mr Deputy Speaker, because the government are trying to position themselves as having stopped, having stopped short of breaching international law. What these independent briefings make clear is that the government haven't stopped short of breaching international law. The bill undermines the principles of the rule of law and the separation of powers, which are supposedly central to the British Constitution, as well as undermining various of our international obligations. And I would commend to honourable members reading the independent legal advice that has been given to the Joint Committee on Human Rights. I am just going to take a few highlights from it. Requiring the courts to conclude that Rwanda is safe even though the evidence has been assessed by the UK's highest courts to establish that it is not, is a remarkable thing for a piece of legislation to do. If the government were so confident that Rwanda is suddenly safe and has suddenly become safe in the last month, as I said earlier in my intervention, why pass this bill at all? Another point in the Joint Committee on Human Rights Legal Analysis, disapplying the Human Rights Act is very significant. If human rights protections are disapplied when they cause problems for a policy goal, they lose their fundamental and universal quality that characterises them. And this is arguably particularly the case when they are disapplied in respect of a particular group, in this case migrants who have come to the UK without prior permission. And in my own aside, Mr Deputy Speaker, I'll just remind the House that history shows that withdrawing human rights from a particular group when a country mm-hmm. does that, it's on a particularly slippery uh, slope. Uh, The Joint Committee on Human Rights, uh, our independent legal advice, also makes it very clear that, crucially, no matter what the legislation says, it can affect only domestic law. As the Supreme Court explained only a month ago, the United Kingdom is prohibited from allowing refoulement under the Refugee Convention and the ECHR, as well as under the UN Convention Against Torture and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. All of these obligations are obligations to which we have signed up in international law. Passing this bill will not change the fact that we are signed up to those obligations in international law, and it won't change the fact that we are uh, breaching our international legal obligations. So the members on the opposite benches, particularly the lawyers who have convinced themselves that it is okay to go through the lobbies and vote for the second reading of this bill tonight, are simply wrong. And if they look at the independent and legal advice from the JCHR and indeed from the Bingham Centre on the rule of law, they will see that that is the case. Yes, I will give way. Uh, I thank one of our friends for uh, giving way. Isn't the fundamental part of the problem with this bill is that so many people see it as um, punishing the exploited and not the exploiter? And if the government was serious about this issue, that's exactly what they would focus on. Nope. Well, indeed, and you know, it's, it's been suggested by a number of speakers this afternoon that no alternatives have been suggested to the, this bill. But alternatives have been suggested. Yeah. A, a serious attempt to break the model of the people smugglers. Proper international cooperation. Unfortunately, because of Brexit and because of the government's attitude towards international law, the United Kingdom's opportunities for international cooperation are becoming uh, few 
and far between because people don't trust us any longer and we don't have the same avenues for international cooperation as, as we used to have. Creating safe and legal routes, that's the way to do it. That's what we used to have. People who are seeking asylum are not seeking asylum illegally, but they come across the channel because they have no other way to seek asylum unless they come to the country. So create uh, uh, legal routes. But I want to say something about how this uh, bill impinges on uh, Scotland. Uh, I want to make it very clear that when members opposite talk about their mandate and their constituents wanting this bill, people in Scotland don't want this bill. It's not the approach that we uh, want in Scotland. And so, therefore, it's particularly egregious that this bill seeks to oust the jurisdiction of the Scottish courts in relation to such fundamental matters as human rights and the basic uh, tenets of our Constitution. Now, Mr Deputy Speaker, Scotland's system of civil justice is a devolved matter under the Scotland Act, and therefore it's the preserve of the Scottish Parliament. Yet I don't see any legislative consent motion being sought, despite the fact that the jurisdiction of the Scottish courts is being ousted. Perhaps even more importantly, historically, and it's rather important to those of us who are Scots lawyers, the authority and privileges of the Court of Session, including its inherent supervisory jurisdiction, are protected by Article 19 of the Treaty of Union. And that includes the noble officium of the Court of Session, a a power that exists to give remedies where otherwise there would be no other remedy. And that's also arguably threatened by this bill. Now, I know the government's not terribly interested in Scotland, but I do wonder whether the government's applied its mind to whether there should have been a legislative consent motion here and to whether this legislation is in breach of the Treaty of Union by ousting the jurisdiction of the Scottish courts. That's a sort of another plot twist, isn't it? That not only is it illegal and immoral, it's actually breaching the Treaty of Union. And last I heard, the Scottish government were considering whether they were going to mount any kind of legal challenge on that point. Neil Hanvey, who did try and bring a bill in at Westminster demanding that Scotland has the right to choose its future, that bill didn't get enough support to be taken forward. So he took the opportunity of an adjournment debate to continue that case. So there is some quite interesting stuff in here about equality of nations and an opinion from an international lawyer. It's important to establish how far this government and the party of opposition have moved from the principle of equity of all peoples of this alleged union of equals and ultimately against the democratic will of the people of Scotland. In 1889, in this place, the equality of UK partner countries was asserted by none other than William Ewart Gladstone MP when he said the following... I am to suppose a case in which Scotland unanimously or by a clearly prepondering voice were to make the demand on the United Parliament to be treated not only on the same principle but in the same manner as Ireland. I could not deny the title of Scotland to urge such a claim. That principle of equity was at the heart of my private member's bill and was again articulated in Amendment J in my name to the recent King's speech. 
Each are consistent with the motion passed by this House that endorsed the principle of the 1989 Claim of Right, which acknowledged the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs. However inured this House has since become to the aspirations of the people of Scotland to live in a normal independent country, support for independence is holding steady at around 50%, without a single leaflet being dropped through a letterbox. That number is rising steadily and will continue to climb. The independence genie is not for going back into the bottle. Independence is not going to fall into our laps. It's something that we have to pursue with vigour and absolute determination. But this uh, approach reinstates the position of the national movement prior to devolution. And as with all democratic expressions, the threshold would be a simple majority of votes cast for all independence parties, a threshold achieved on the last list vote for the Scottish Parliament. This approach is supported by the expert legal opinion I obtained from highly distinguished academic and legal practitioner in international law, Professor Robert McCorkadale, that, and I quote, the people of Scotland are distinct within the UK and have a right to self-determination. And subsequently, the right to self-determination applies to the people of Scotland. Going on to state, as the people of Scotland are a people for the purposes of the right to self determination, they can exercise it. The choice of the means to to exercise it is for the people to decide, not for the state. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Now, moving on from what the law demands to Alistair Jack who interprets it any way he sees fit. Actually, I'm beginning to think he might be our secret weapon. He's constructed a cover story of this arrogant dullard, and it's very successful in welcoming people into the Yes movement. His latest wheeze has been to forbid Scottish ministers from having any kind of contact with the outside world. Let's see how he explained this at Westminster. Mr Speaker, climate change talks at COP28 begin tomorrow. One of the most important issues to be agreed upon at the conference is the Climate Loss and Damage Fund. The Secretary of State will know that Scotland has led the way on this, becoming the first country in the global north to pledge financial support to address loss and damage. Yet the Secretary of State and his Conservative colleagues are intent on limiting the Scottish Government's international engagement. So can the Secretary of State tell me why he wants to silence Scotland's voice and prevent us from providing this global leadership? Well, Mr Speaker, it's very, it's very straightforward. I mean, we understand that there will be environmental engagement overseas from the Scottish Government, we, and that's a devolved matter. But it, the, what we've tried to uh, get a grip on is the Scottish Government travelling overseas, meeting ministers, discussing reserved areas, the constitutional, constitutional affairs, discussing uh, foreign affairs... And, and straying away from the portfolio of, 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 of matters that are devolved to them. And, and that is our position. Secret agent Alistair Jack wanting to keep a lid on what Scottish ministers are allowed to discuss when they're abroad. Now, that was in Westminster and a question was raised in Holyrood, which sheds a bit more light on it. 
The framers of the Scotland Act were clear that the reservation of international relations does not have the effect of precluding the Scottish ministers and officials from communicating with other countries, regions or international or European institutions, so long as the representatives of the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish ministers do not purport to speak for the United Kingdom or to reach agreements which come out the UK. So can the Scottish Government confirm that uh, it would seem the Government here is being accused of not respecting the devolved settlement for clarity? Can the Cabinet Secretary can confirm whether the First Minister or indeed any other Minister has purported to commit the UK to any international agreement? Well, firstly, Dr Allen was actually quoting from the explanatory notes around the uh, Scotland Act, so it's a statement of fact in his question. In answer to the question specifically, no Scottish Government Minister has or would purport to speak for the United Kingdom or to reach agreements which commit the UK. In fact, I asked James Cleverley for any examples of such a thing. He said he had none. So that's a slightly different emphasis, isn't it? You've got Alistair Jack yet again, you know, not for the first time, reinterpreting the rules to suit his own opinions. And if you look at the actual Scotland Act, the only limitation is on the Scottish ministers going abroad and, and giving the impression they're speaking on behalf of the UK. They can be talking about anything to anybody as long as they don't say they're, they're talking on behalf of the UK. And I would think that if it's in terms of talking up Scotland, they're, they're more than likely making it very clear that they're talking about Scotland. Just to round up on Westminster, there's other things going on and there's other good speeches as ever. So this is just a little quickfire round of a couple of the, the clips that caught my attention. Gavin Newland. Uh, thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Last year, Scotland exported 19 trillion watt-hours of electricity wow. worth £4 billion pounds to the UK grid. Yet not only do Scottish generators pay the highest grid connection charges in Europe, Scots pay amongst the highest standing charges, whilst London is by far the lowest. Uh, our heating and lighting is switched on a lot earlier and off a lot later than the south of England. So should Scottish households be forced to shiver in the dark this winter to subsidise the richest part of the UK? Yeah. Yeah. Speaker, the co- between March 2021 and April 2023, the cost of first infant formulas increased by an average of 24%, with the cheapest infant formula on the market increasing by 45 An absolute catastrophe for families who rely on infant formula, but a bonanza for the formula companies who are making significant profits out of this. So can he tell me, why does he believe that it's right for companies to profit while families struggle to feed their babies? Stephen Flynn. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. Is the Prime Minister worried that he is projected to be the first Conservative Party leader to lose a general election to a fellow Thatcherite? Of course, Madam Deputy Speaker, it's not just in relation to Margaret Thatcher where the Tory and Labour leader appear to agree. The same is true of the government's latest migration policies. Now, for those of us on these benches, we aren't afraid to say that we believe migration is a good thing. It enriches enriches our communities, it enriches our economy, it enriches our universities, our schools, our health service and, of course, our care sector. So in that regard, can I ask the Prime Minister, why does he think it is acceptable to ask people to come to these shores to care for our family members whilst we show complete disregard for theirs? What has become of this place? SNP spokesperson Deirdre Block. 
Uh, Madam Deputy Speaker, it's attempting to forestall and dismantle now any spin the leader may be inclined to bring up on Scottish education issues, given Westminster's shocking record in that department. But following the leader's outburst against Scotland's health service workers last week, I feel I need to clear up a few things, as Scotland watches her odd weekly rants, as the Scottish press now dub them, with some concern and alarm. So some useful facts for her and Scotland about the Scottish NHS. Health funding in Scotland is at record highs. Staffing levels also at a record high, with far more staff per head than England. The best performing A&E units in the UK, the highest number of GPs per head in the UK. No prescription charges, and still not a single day lost to industrial disputes in Scotland's NHS. Of course, there's always room for improvement, but as the leader reaches for her latest penny dreadful script, she can rest assured I will always be happy to set the record straight wherever her imagination takes her. Meanwhile, her government plums new debts with its immigration panic measures, so damaging in particular to Scotland. One of the Daily Telegraph's columnists, Tim Stanley, has written on this. My friend has messaged me in a blind panic. If you fall in love and marry someone from overseas, do you have to have an income of £38,700 to settle them here? Something like 75% of us earn less than that. Is it fair to limit family formation to the rich? Is it conservative to divide families, he asks. Of course, it's fine if you are rich, it seems, so maybe it is. If we, our children, our grandchildren, fall in love with someone from another country, as so many of us do on our travels, and I'm living proof of that, unless we can guarantee earnings nearing £39,000, they won't be able to join us here. Cue a further exodus of our young people from these shores to other countries with a more enlightened approach to migration and their citizens' human rights. And now another little quick fire round, this time from Holyrood. Today sees the publication of the Achievement of Curriculum for Excellence Levels, commonly known as ASIL, for the last academic year, 22-23. ASIL reports on the proportion of all pupils in Primary 1, Primary 4, Primary 7 and S3 who have achieved the expected Curriculum for Excellence Levels in Literacy and Numeracy. It is the most comprehensive national data set on attainment and literacy and numeracy, and it is predicated on teacher judgment. The proportion of primary pupils attending the, uh, attaining rather the expected levels in both literacy and numeracy have increased. This is the case for children from both the most and the least deprived areas. The attainment gap in literacy in primary schools has decreased. And at secondary level, we have seen increases in attainment across the board whilst the attainment gap reduces. It is further worth remembering that this summer saw the overall pass rate for National 5 hires and advanced hires above pre-pandemic levels since 2019 and the poverty-related attainment gap narrowing. I hope that everyone in this chamber will welcome these achievements of our pupils, their teachers and our support staff. Trade unions stand as a cornerstone of Scottish democracy, playing a pivotal role in realising our fair work ambitions as we successfully transition to net zero. These ambitions in turn form the bedrock of a well-being economy, providing workers with better job quality, pay, economic security and work-life balance, and employers and an available workforce with the right skills aligned to the needs of businesses and our economy. The STUC represents around 540,000 trade unionists and members of 39 affiliated trade unions and 20 trade union councils. It can speak for the interests of uh, female workers, black workers, young workers uh, and those who suffer discrimination, not just in the workplace, but also as part of civil society. To genuinely foster 
an inclusive society with well-being at its heart, a strong economy, a goal I believe most members of this chamber share. These voices are invaluable in development of economic and social policies. Only recently, the First Minister and I held a biannual meeting with the STUC and their affiliates where the issue of minimum service levels was raised. Alongside the First Minister, I made a commitment to do everything in our power to resist the implementation of the Strikes Act. Back in 2016, uh, by all means. Daniel Johnson. I'm very grateful to the Cabinet Secretary. I mean, he's quite right. At the heart of this is the, the, the role of the trade unions in representing workers. But actually, is there not much more a fundamental principle, that of the relationship between worker and their work and their right to withdraw their labour when all they have to exchange is their labour itself? Yeah. Cabinet Secretary. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And, and I think that's a principle uh, Daniel Johnson uh, and I share, which is why um, I hope we can secure uh, labour support for the motion that we have uh, before us this evening. That budget commitment to climate and nature is also a commitment to people. Record funding for active travel creates safer neighbourhoods. Investment in nature means more rural jobs. And funding for warm homes lifts people out of fuel poverty. So can the First Minister outline how the government will ensure that the economic benefits of this government's record investment in climate will reach the very people who need it the most? 13 years of Tory austerity is eroding funding for public services. On top of that, Scotland is still paying off Labour's dodgy PFI deals. This includes Hearmeyer's Hospital in East Kilbride, which cost £68 million to build over 20 years ago. But the PFI debt is £28.7 million this year and £29 million next year, with a total repayment exceeding £700 million. Let's make it absolutely abundantly clear that the majority of those in Scotland will pay less tax compared to those in the rest of the United Kingdom. No ifs, no buts, no maybes about it. And this budget, at its very heart, is about values. The Conservative Party, in their autumn statement, chose to give those like Douglas Ross on higher salaries a tax cut of £754. In contrast, we are asking the top 5% of highest earners, like Douglas Ross, to pay a little more in tax. And by doing so, we're able to give our NHS over £500 million of an uplift, a real terms increase to our NHS, where, of course, the Conservative Party have cut funding for NHS in England. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Patrick Harvey of the Scottish Greens appeared on the Sunday show. You know, the UK government is planning to build a new nuclear plant every year in England and Wales. We will be using nuclear power in our homes in the future in Scotland because it's going to be part of our grid. You're just preventing the development here. So what you're saying is we'll take the power, but we will just say no thanks to the jobs and the investment and the skills and the money. As you see, not just energy policies develop in different parts of the UK, uh, but also the development of high voltage direct uh, transmission uh, across the, uh, the whole of Europe and, and beyond. Over subsequent decades, perhaps even down to North Africa, you're going to be seeing a, an electricity grid that joins many different sources mm. across a very, very wide area. Yes, you will ultimately use energy that's produced under a different energy policy. So why don't we want countries. the jobs? 
we do want the jobs and we, where we will get high quality jobs from is in where Scotland has a strategic advantage. That is in renewables, that is in green hydrogen. That's Scotland's selling point at the moment and it's an incredibly bright future if we commit to seeing that happen. Is nuclear development here a red line? for the Greens. If the Scottish Government came in and said, actually, to be honest, maybe some of these new small-scale nuclear plants, maybe we will have them, would you walk away from the Butte House Agreement if that happened? Well, I don't think that's likely to happen. What I'm very clear about is that you know, obviously any change of energy policy would have to be debated not just between the two parties in government but across all the parties in Parliament. I would have serious concerns about anything that dilutes our clear laser-like focus on developing our renewable energy potential and the credible potential mm. of green hydrogen as well. Nuclear would take too long, it would be too expensive, I don't think the waste management issues have been fully resolved. It's not where Scotland's advantage lies. Would you understand why people think, heard it all before? What I recall from when I was first elected, which is 20 years ago now, was that Scotland was already, even under the, the Labour-led Dem coalition, before the, the current government was in place, across the political parties, Scotland was setting ambitious targets, not just for climate, but for generating renewable electricity. And every time one of those targets was set, the naysayers would say, that's impossible. Renewables can't do that. Renewables are a niche case. Uh, you'll never reach that target. Those targets were beaten every time, a more ambitious target set, and the same naysayers came out of the woodwork yet again. Okay. Scotland has done amazing work at generating more energy from renewables. We now have an an even more challenging job to do to make sure that we apply okay. that ad advantageous, cheap, clean, green, renewable electricity to heat, to transport. Now, if anybody's heard our latest episode coming from the Festival of Survival, setting out the case for non-proliferation of, of nuclear weapons, it also includes energy. Some are arguing that nuclear power, small nuclear reactors, as they call them, are a solution as a potential energy source. But you're talking about the proliferation of nuclear power stations in potentially some unstable regions and areas that are not unstable at the moment but could become unstable because of environmental chaos, environmental breakdown and so on. So all of that really is quite important. You're setting yourself up as a hostage to fortune. While it is often touted and lobbied for as being a clean energy source, it really isn't. It produces nuclear waste and byproducts so dangerous and with such a long damaging effect that when we bury them in deep underground vaults, we actually have to consider warning systems that other civilizations who don't know about our language and culture will be able to recognize. We're going to move on to the, the next EU elections. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, we're not in the EU anymore, so what do we care? We can't vote in the elections. But actually, this is a very important election, and it's to do with the expansion of the EU. And the group Europe for Scotland have set up a petition asking for Scotland to be part of that conversation and to have European citizens fighting to keep us in the consciousness of Europe, I think is a very, very wonderful thing. Here is a clip from part of that discussion that explains about the petition and we'll also include a link in the notes as to how you can sign the petition because it's very important that we take as much interest in our future as Europeans are taking. Today we have a very important event for us because we want to present our new petition. It's called Would You Like Scotland to be part on the conversation on EU enlargement? It asks European citizens and MEPs in the next European Parliament to remember Scotland, 
and to keep Scotland part of the conversation on a democratic, open and fair enlargement. Coming European elections are very significant because there is a moment in which the EU is really coming together to discuss uh, serious uh, reforms and uh, this uh, uh, important process of enlargement. Of course, uh, when the European Union project started in, uh, in the 50s, it was just six member states, so it has been enlarging over the years, but there has been a long pause. And this long pause uh, was uh, coinciding with Brexit, really. So Brexit uh, was a moment that sucked up energy from everyone in Europe. Now the EU has moved on from Brexit. People in Europe uh, don't talk about Brexit that much. And of course, uh, the, the war in Ukraine uh, triggered this new mindset uh, in which you understood that it's time to restart the process uh, and start to welcome the country you want to join. And so the next European Council uh, in uh, December might give the green light to start negotiations uh, for Ukraine to join. And there is uh, another about 10 countries that are queuing to join. So the next European elections is going to elect a new parliament that is going to decide on enlargement. And we don't want Scotland to be forgotten in these plans. We know that there are like different views in Scotland of what kind of relationship to Europe they want. I think it's fair to say that most Scots don't like Brexit, but some think they should, they should join EFTA, others think they should be an associate member of the EU, others want full membership. These are not things that we can have any, we, we don't want to influence anybody's mind here, that is not up to us, which is also kind of why we uh, formulated the petition that we are launching, coming back to that. It's literally just asking, do you want Scotland to be part of the conversation? At the moment, it's a conversation among politicians and journalists. But when the European election campaign will uh, start in March, it's going to be a conversation among citizens, among uh, candidates for parliament, among uh, civil society. And uh, we really want people in these debates to also remember Scotland, to remember Scotland decided to join you. And this petition is something to break the news and to say the Scots are still here campaigning, uh, willing to be part of this conversation. Of course, uh, we ask to remember uh, that uh, Scotland is one of the most ancient historic country and has been part of the EU for 47 years. Of course, we ask all the Scots to come and join this call to really uh, make an impression on the debate and to create a bond, a dialogue between Scottish citizens and European citizens. Uh, this is not a petition for politicians. This is a petition to talk between citizens. Leslie Riddick, who has been at every conference that we've covered in the, the last month, she chips in on this one as well. Clearly, there are a hundred other priorities that would occur to EU politicians, EU citizens, even the most intelligent, switched-on, connected, open-minded person from any of the EU states will have a lot of other inputs to their awareness other than what is currently just a little corner of Britain. So it's up to us to keep making a bit of noise, to kind of keep explaining that this type of country we are, the kind of state we want to become, and the evidence that we have our voting system, which nobody even bothered to think about, rather the criteria for the independence referendum, entirely about residency, not ethnic, like the Brexit referendum. And so little commented upon here in Scotland that people don't even notice what we did. But that was kind of an instinctive thing. If you've been here for three months, that'll do. So 
I think there's one good reason that we need to get out and lobby because the context within Europe is constantly changing, one. The other context is enlargement. So Ukraine obviously is taking up huge amounts of people's concentration, but it has also created an animus towards uh, the idea of enlargement. There's Moldova, there's other wee countries waiting as well. So the EU is actively thinking about that. Now, whilst they're actively thinking and all those countries are on the eastern side of Europe, we need somebody to keep reminding them there's another country that wants to be a joiner, half or 54% of whose population want to be joiners without a campaign. If we don't make that point, then enlargement begins to feel entirely like an East European affair. And actually, we're still here. And not to try and have any arm wrestling competition with Ukraine at all. But we are already, the citizens here and our country is still compliant, just despite the best efforts of Westminster. We're still compliant with rules that we have followed for the last 40 years. We've been EU citizens for 40 years. We get it. We're in. We used to be members. We've still got the cards down the back of the sofa. So that's quite attractive we would also be probably the only country to seek independence, possibly ever, to maintain its European identity. Now, I know a lot of people will say, oh, come on, that's not the main reason we're doing it. Well, everybody's got their own different reasons. But as someone who was brought up in Belfast, I see the different way that European identity sitting behind Ireland has been the motor, really, uh, behind the prospects, which are still not immediate, but are there, of Irish reunification. And last year, uh, for the first time, more Irish passports were issued in Belfast than British ones, which I must say, amongst the many things I never expected to see in my lifetime about Ireland, was a bit of a corker. Now, it's not just that people on the Shankill Road suddenly decide they want to have a green Irish passport, it's that they want to be European. Now, maybe it's clearer when you have a land border with an actual European state, but look at the kind of support that Ireland got from Europe through all that awful bullying behaviour, threatening behaviour from Britain, not in our name, by the way, towards Ireland, who suddenly lost their conduit to Europe and have now constructed so many actual port links with France and around England that they have essentially reconstructed their trade routes completely. So Scotland would love, I think, to have that kind of capacity. And we've already got the template for it sitting within the island of Ireland. So for all these reasons, we need to be active and busy on the European front. We are so lucky that we have a set of people who, for whatever reason, think Scotland matters to Europe and to them that they are willing to spend their times on a, you know, on a night like this to put these kind of uh, events together, to keep maintaining a website, to keep pushing for the idea of Scotland as a European partner. That is gold dust, people, because it's so much effort. All you have to do as Scots is get off your blooming bahookies, get onto that website, europeforscotland.com. You'll find the petition to sign and get on with it. Get three people to sign. Don't just, you know, do it. Just please make the effort to spread this one virally because you know there will be no part of the mainstream media that will even notice this 
which is the final thing to say, Britain is so broken that actually it's now not just Scots who always wanted to stay in the European Union. It's 54% of British voters, which means people in England now have a regret that they left. Which political parties from Westminster represent that aspiration? Zilch. So we need to keep motoring because, you know, pretty much everybody can see the place to be is with your neighbours who respect your your state, your independence and your equality within a union, which sadly is something that we can see is not true within the UK. We're recording this at the midwinter solstice, the longest night. I came across a poem by Alison Miller, which is called Maze Howe at Midwinter. Maze Howe is an ancient tomb well, we think to an ancient site on Orkney. Over the 20 days around the solstice, the sunset sends shafts of light. It lines up with the passage that goes into the hillside, into this ancient building. Now, we don't know what it meant. suspect it may have some kind of fertility aspect to it myself. This poem was recited in Mays Howe one midwinter. Midwinter at Mays Howe. Saint Magnus, keep for us a jar of light beyond sun and star. I have a deep-rooted belief that what has once existed can never die, not even the frailest things, spindrift or clover scent or glitter of star on a wet stone. George Mackay Brown It doesn't look like a day for it, a curtain of rain shimmering out to the west, the hoy hills veiled in mist, you hate to watch your feet. Puddles new mead will sigh through your socks and boots. Sheep pearls flung about like beads. Wait, though, a glisk of silver on the loch. Faint glimmer on a pool. Rising for the field, scaling shell millions of light. A flock of chaldros, pipe and lewd. They'll always swing into that plink. Never heed their pleeping. To shack out glitter for their wings. Look up as they flee, see the lochs, the stones, at the cleft in the hills a glimmer light. Scant hit there, but the thought warms your bones. So come thou to the hive under the mound, where the queen bee's sun spreads her honey gold on the shortest day with the murk all round. Tilda down the path bent o'er to the chamber, let your eyes grow used with the gremlins, and your ears pick up words catched in amber, or oh, the scald and the artist and their friends come into the tomb for the first time at the solstice to see with their own in the sunset flew in a blink on the stone. They stand around amazed, speaking low, wondering about the folk that's gone. Later, in the paper, the bard describes the crepuscular whispering figures you were among, Wonders about the tribe of folk that hauled the stones to Big Maze Howe, their knowledge of mathematics and the stars, their building skills, engineering know-how, secrets teen with them to their own graves. Poet, painter, friends, all away no tay, as we that come in here must one day leave, sooner or later. But for no, turn this bowl of death right hour, brim up, 
Watch the light pour out to shine and burn with a tullament of five millennia, gathering, hadden, bottling, keeping the last rays of every shortest day. Every Yule solstice for five thousand year, on the one fleeting day the sun draws breath, afore warm in the sea, waking in the earth. See the light travel up ayont star, ayont moon and mother sun that borehead. It can never die, says the Orkney bard. Inside the tomb, the runes, the leafless trees of Vikings, carved with great pride in the stone. Outside, bare fields. Whatever we had screeved, it's the psalm words. Plough, seed, brier, barley, herst, breed, ale. Page after page of brun tilth turned on the land. The Sam old, Sam new tale. And for our very final clip of 2023, we're going to bring David Linden's alternative Christmas message. We celebrate Christmas because of the birth of our Lord, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin named Mary, born in a barn, the most unlikely place for the King of Kings. It's it's widely acknowledged that Mary and Joseph were migrants travelling by unconventional means. Had the authorities in Bethlehem decreed that migrants travelling by unconventional means be deported to Rwanda, how much further would the three wise men have had to travel to celebrate the birth of our Lord? So that's it for 2023. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. As you know, there's a new episode out every Friday. We're going to keep that going right the way through the festive period and right up until we get our independence. And don't forget, you can get all our past episodes on our website, scottishindipod.scot. Have a fantastic Hogmanay. Catch you later. Bye now. You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. I'm a piece.